0: You're listening to Jesus is Everything, the teaching ministry of The Way, Eugene. Well, uh, as you guys turn over to Galatians chapter 4, I encounter, God is gracious in so many ways, but, but one of the ways that he, I find him to be gracious is in... Helping us as Christians, as followers of Jesus, keep ourselves grounded in the reality of the world that we live in. Oftentimes, there's the criticism of Christians um, that goes something along this lines. Uh, Christians are so heavenly minded that they're no earthly good, right? Right? that we have our head up in the clouds, that we're so excited for what's to come in eternity, which is good, but oftentimes it can sort of sort of take us out of this, this world that we live in and the impact that we're supposed to have here. Now, I've heard the, the, the converse of that statement as well, that Christians can be no earthly good unless... They're heavenly minded, right? We have to have a vision of eternity and the hope of glory that is to come for us to have an impact here. But one of the primary criticisms of people that goes along with that sort of image that the world or unbelievers may have of Christians, one of the primary criticisms of Christians in the world today is the accusation of disunity within the church, Sort of the fracturing of the church or or the infighting, right? The world looks at Christians oftentimes and, and Christians will say, we're all one, we're all in the family of God, and yet the world will look at us and go, well, then why are you calling each other names? Why are you guys arguing about... How you're supposed to worship, or what you do on Sunday, or how you do services on Sunday mornings, right? Why is there so much fracture and division? And there are other religions who will look at Christianity and go, You can't claim to be unified. You're not unified at all. Look at all the infighting and the name calling, right? And that's not even necessarily just relating to doctrine or interpretation of the scripture, it's just in general, people being mean to each other. It was Mahatma Gandhi, who famously and very sadly said, I like your Christ, I do not like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. And perhaps you've seen the bumper sticker that says, God save me from your followers. I heard it said as well that there's no worse kind of hatred than what is often called Christian love. This is an important thing that we're going to see here in the scripture that where once there was fellowship and relationship and genuine affection and love in the body of Christ, there was now division that Paul was experiencing. And the reality is that division of any kind in a relationship is painful, it's hard. And it causes all sorts of problems, especially when you are claiming unity. And so Paul's going to address this. And this is why uh, I, I mentioned this briefly last week, but when we get done with our study through Galatians here, just a couple more chapters... The rest of the summer, we're going to take a break from our Wednesday night Bible study. Uh, and, and so we'll have a couple of more, but then we're going to take a break from our Wednesday night Bible study. And on Sunday mornings, we're really just going to press into and focus on uh, a brief series that goes over not just who we are as followers of Jesus, as Christians, but how we are as Christians, what it should look like according to scripture for us to call ourselves by the name of Jesus. I think that's an important study for us to do that hopefully can remind us and bring us into alignment of going, oh yeah, it's not just about showing up at church. Oh yeah, it's not just about claiming the name of Jesus. There's some actual concrete evidential uh, experiences that we're supposed to pursue as followers of Jesus. And so we're going to spend the summer studying through that. And I'll let you know when our official last Wednesday night is and all those kinds of things, but that's our goal is so that we can be people who in our best efforts and our best desire are examples of Christians, followers of Jesus, who are actively pursuing what it looks like to be who Jesus called us to be. Now, as you guys are in Galatians chapter 4, I'm going to read a different section of scripture just briefly. I read it last week, but I, I want to repeat it because it's so significant for us. Mark this down for your own study later. It's a good section of scripture to read through. Luke chapter 7, beginning in verse 36. Luke 7:36 says, One of the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day, asked Jesus to eat with him. And Jesus went into the Pharisees' house and, incli- and reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city, who was a sinner, that's a euphemism, euphemism to say that this lady was probably a prostitute. She was probably someone who had, had a, a lifestyle that was uh, defined by sin. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that Jesus was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wipe them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited Jesus saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. Now, first things first. If this guy's claiming that Jesus, if he really is a true prophet, should have known what kind of woman this is, I want to know how the Pharisee knew what kind of woman she was. (laughs) That's my question. How is he pointing it? Yeah, you get what I'm saying. Verse 40, and Jesus answering him said, Simon, I have something to say to you. And the Pharisee answered, say it, teacher. And then Jesus speaks this parable. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? And Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And Jesus said to him, you've judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet. The tradition in that day and age as you were walking around the dusty, dirty ground where trash was, As you came into someone's house, there was a basin of water. And the host would, as you stepped into the basin of water and washed your feet off, they would stoop down and with a towel wipe your feet so you could come into the house refreshed and clean. And he says, when I came into your house, you didn't even have water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. Jesus says, you gave me no kiss, but from the time that I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You didn't anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to the woman, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And and Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. See, here's the principle. If you have, if you have the self-righteous attitude of a religious person who thinks, because I've done my religious duty, because I've showed up at temple and I've performed the correct sacrifices, because I was at church three out of four weekends for the month, or whatever the case might be that you might judge is good enough, if you feel that you're righteous and that you don't have a whole lot to be forgiven, I'm pretty good. I've got a couple of maybe little bad things, but I'm pretty good. Then what Jesus says in this parable is that this is what happens. If you've only been forgiven a little, you actually only know how to love a little bit versus the person who is honest with themselves, humbles themselves before the Lord and goes, I've had an immense debt forgiven to me. I've been forgiven more than I could ever repay. What that causes in a person is the ability, the capability to love greatly. This is so incredibly important for us because what we see in Galatians chapter 4, as I asked you to turn there earlier, what we see in Galatians chapter 4 is a problem that Paul encounters with these churches See, the churches of Galatia, when they first heard the gospel, when the Apostle Paul brought the news of Jesus and his salvation to them, they were changed. They experienced this great love and forgiveness and this joy in such a way that they were willing to quite literally give the shirts off their back for the Apostle Paul, and they, were, they, they obeyed and honored Paul because of the fact that he brought the gospel to them. Let's read in Galatians chapter 4, beginning in verse 12, and sort of see what the problem is with this as we move forward. Paul says in Galatians 4, 12, Brothers and sisters, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. And verse 13 says, You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, mark this, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. See, there was this great love that the churches of Galatia had. Apparently, Paul had a medical condition of some kind. And we'll see in just a second that it had to do with his eyes. Perhaps some scholars think he had glaucoma or something else that was causing him to have a medical problem. And that as he came into the region of Galatia, perhaps he was seeking medical help of some kind and also brought the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ to those people. And so he says, I may have been a burden to you or a trial for you because of this bodily ailment, but the fact that I came to you because of those things, I also took the opportunity to preach the gospel. Do you realize that every situation we're in in life, whether it's a good situation or a bad situation, is an opportunity for us to preach the gospel to somebody? Do you guys understand that in every place we are in the world, it doesn't matter, we bring Jesus with us. It's an opportunity for us to share the truth of the gospel. I wonder what it is about medical conditions. When my dad had cancer, he had cancer, he passed away 10, 11 years ago, um, and he was, he was on the younger side, he passed when he was 58, but in the two years that he was receiving treatment and had uh, actively had, had the cancer... My dad was a faithful man, he was in ministry, he, he taught the word, he had a, a, a ministry of sharing the gospel with people who were deceived, um, and so there was no shortage of Jesus in his life, but there was something interesting that when he got sick and he was faced with the mortality that we all will face at some point, we don't know when, something kicked in for him. He was a fairly reserved person. He wasn't necessarily an extrovert. He was in his head a lot. He was fairly quiet. He didn't worship expressively necessarily. More often than not, he was quietly in tears rather than raising his hands and expressive in those things. But something switched. Some, some switch flipped the moment he got that cancer diagnosis. And every person he came into contact left that communication or, or contact with him knowing about Jesus. There's something about that issue. And so, you know, for for our culture and our society, we're always looking how to live the longest and be the healthiest and go the furthest in life and these kinds of things. And yet the reality is it's the trials that we go through, it's the hard things that we experience that actually sort of bring us closer to Jesus and actually help us to fulfill the thing that Jesus called us to do. Strange paradigm, isn't it? Because we look at the world around us and we go, no, I just want to be healthy. Now, because when I'm healthy, then I'm happy. Then I could go do all the things that I want to do. And yet it's the people who are suffering illness, the brokenness of this world, that you just see the light of Jesus shine through in a way perhaps that you never have before. It's an interesting thing. But we see that in Paul's example as well. We see that these churches of Galatia were absolutely loving him. And they received him, Paul says, as an angel of God. They were listening to the Apostle Paul as though he were Christ Jesus coming to share with them. And then look at what it says in verse 15. Here's the rub. Paul says, What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. This is where Paul finds himself in this conflict, this place of of disconnection, disunity with these churches, these fellow brothers and sisters uh, of, of Christ in the church. And his question is, what happened to you? What changed? Why are you treating me so differently? Drop down to verse 20. Look at what it says in chapter four, verse 20. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone. And look at the last few words. For I am Perplexed by you paul 's perplexion, Christian confusion, we once had this fellowship and this love for one another, where we were willing to give each other everything. I had a medical condition, you figuratively wished you could gouge out your eyes and give them to me so that I could have healthy eyes. I had need, and you just you fulfilled every need that I had, and then something happened something changed we were once so loving and gracious towards one another and then all of a sudden the attitude shifted it's sort of a silly question to ask but have you ever experienced this personally in a relationship where you thought things were good the relationship was healthy and all these things and then all of a sudden it changed and along with it came confusion I don't know what I said I don't know what I did frustration they won't call me back they're not willing to sit down and figure out what's wrong and and go through the process of reconciliation perhaps you have poured your heart and soul into a relationship of some kind whether it be a friendship whether it be a family member a marriage and then all of a sudden something changes and not in a good way This is where Paul finds himself with the churches of Galatia. I believe this is where we find ourselves in the church even this day. How many of us have friendships, relationships that once were just a blessing, once that just were the epitome of of what it meant to be a part of the body of Christ, right? Brothers from a different mother, right? Right? I've got friends who, who, like, they're not family, we're not blood kin, but there's guys that I know would lay down in traffic for me. They would do whatever. I'd call from, from Indiana, and, and my buddy Andy would drive all night if he needed to to get here. If I honestly told him I need your help with something, right? That fellowship in Christ is what we long for. And yet how many of us have, have felt the strains of broken relationships? When Paul asks this question, what then has become of your blessedness, in verse 15, it's a technique that Paul uses frequently. It's a rhetorical question. It doesn't really need an answer. It sort of, sort of already has an answer. And yet, here's how Paul responds to this. Look at verse 16. Have I then become your enemy, and here's the reason for the separation, Here's the reason for the change. That's why it was a rhetorical question. Paul answers it in this way. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? How many of you know that the truth can cause problems in a relationship? Amen. Amen. See, I think a lot of times in our culture that, that word truth has become sort of this um, catchword or phrase or idea where we in and of ourselves would like to say, well, I just, I, I pursue the truth in all things. I just, hey, be honest with me. How many times have you ever said that to someone in a relationship? And then when they were honest with you, you were like, no, I didn't want that kind of honesty. No. And I mean, that you could do all the funny things. Does this dress make me look fat? No. Be honest. Yeah, I am. Yeah. Here's the truth. And this is true regardless. Most people, when they say they want honesty and they want truth in their life, it's just not so. What they want is they want to be validated for who they are, how they are, and what they are at that moment. They're just looking for someone to prop them up. Because if we really were willing to accept truth, if we really wanted people to be honest with us, we wouldn't respond with division and changes of attitude and broken relationships. My big philosophical theory over the last several years is this, is that there is a distinction, a difference between truth and reality. This is the difference. Truth is by definition objective. Truth is always true. It's universal. It's eternal. And it's self-authenticating. When something is true, it doesn't need a higher authority to claim its truth. It's true because it's true. Period. The end. That's why God is the ultimate authority in the universe is there's nothing higher than him to give him authority. It's self-authenticating. Make sense? So truth is always true. Reality, on the other hand, is extremely subjective. It's based on the experience of individual perspectives. And very often, reality is temporary in the sense of your reality one day may be flush with money and and all the bills are paid. But due to some unforeseen circumstances, your reality the next day could be that you're broke as a joke and don't have a dime to your name. See, reality is based on a temporary experiential perspective, right? And so in our culture, in our society, where someone says, hey, speak your truth. Your truth is, might be different than someone else's truth. That's a load of hogwash. Because truth is the same no matter who it applies to. Reality can be different. Your experience can be different, See, as Christians, we're instructed to speak the truth. We are to pursue what is true in all things. Mark down Ephesians chapter four. Ephesians chapter four, verse one, and I'll read it to you. You just mark it down so you can reference it later. Ephesians chapter four. Verses one through six says this, I therefore, again, Paul writing to this church in Ephesus, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body, And one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. You see these themes that Paul uh, continues to speak about in all of his letters? Unity, unity, unity. Love for the brotherhood, love for the fellowship, love for the saints. We're all one. And you see how Paul talks about that we're supposed to uh, walk in a manner worthy of our calling. We're called by the name of Jesus. We are called to walk in a manner that is worthy of that name and doesn't bring shame upon that name. Doesn't bring disregard or disrepute upon that name. That's why he says that you're supposed to walk with humility and gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love. At the end of this section, look at verse 14. Paul explains then that the ability that we have to do this is because Jesus Christ has given gifts to his people so that we can grow in faith and holiness. And it says in verse 14, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, here it is, speaking the truth in love. We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. The body of Christ. Jesus said they're not going to know you because you've got a theological degree. They're not going to know you because you've somehow formulated the correct worship service and the correct order of service. They're not going to know you because of the songs that you sing. They're not going to know you because of the sermons that you preach. Jesus says they're going to know that you're my disciples by the way that you love each other. This is how the world knows that we are are authentic Christians, is that we're not online ripping every other denomination or every other movement that claims to be a part of Jesus. We're simply loving one another. Now, Paul defines that very, very clearly He says we're supposed to speak the truth in love so that when a brother or sister who claims to be in Christ is doing something that doesn't match up with the self-authenticating truth of scripture, in love, we go to them and we sit and we converse and we dialogue and we reason. We say, see here, this is why what you've done here is not consistent with scripture. We don't use our platform or our position or our name to blast everybody else. And this is what Paul was encountering in Galatia. These other apostles, fake apostles, who would come in after his ministry to try and steal those people, to deceive them and confuse them and change and twist and distort and pervert the purity of the gospel that Paul had brought to those churches. So back here in Galatians chapter four, the resolution to this this conflict, this separation, this change of heart or attitude that Paul is experiencing. Here's what he says in in, in verse 17. They make much of you but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you may make much of them. Paul is talking directly to these false apostles who are using these cunning tactics This deception of, if you don't follow us, then you're out. If you don't do what we say, you're out. And then he goes on in verse 18 and says this, It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose, and not only when I'm present with you. Paul's saying, hey, my testimony and what I have taught you when I was with you, but also when I'm away from you, it's good to be made much of, meaning the things that I have taught you, they're good to hold on to. The things that I brought to you, just because someone came in with a different story, a more exciting story, a different perspective or reality, it doesn't change the truth of what I told you. So make much of what I told you. And then he says this in verse 19. Verse 18 again. It's always good to be made much of for a good purpose, and not only when I'm present with you. My little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I want you to understand that this is life-changing if you're willing to latch onto it. If you're willing to, to grab onto what the Apostle Paul says here in the midst of his own personal conflict and toil, if you are willing to appropriate this for your life, this perspective that he has, it is life-changing. Listen again to what he says. My little children for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. Do you understand that it takes a long time to look and act like Jesus consistently? Do you get that, that we have good days where we actually listen to Jesus, but we also have bad days where we just don't listen, that we have seasons of time where we are just growing in leaps and bounds. And then there's other seasons of time where it feels like we're crawling through a desert looking for any drop of water that we can find. These are all experiences that we have as followers of Jesus. Paul expresses this in such an important way. He says that he is going through the anguish of childbirth. Now, we all know men don't get it. We, we, we don't. And that's a great, it's a great metaphor. That's nice, Paul. You're going through the anguish of childbirth. Oh, really? Did you have a headache? <laughs> Did you have a little, little tummy ache? Oh, I'm going to die. Shut up. You, you, don't, you don't even know what you're talking about. But he uses the appropriate analogy. He uses the appropriate image that when you're in labor, it's not something that just comes and goes. It is a constant, constant and, and consistent pressure and pain and clenching and just the entire process of it. Because remember, childbirth in those days, there was no epidural. There was no anesthetic. There was nothing. But here it comes. Bear down. Hold on to something. Bite something. And Paul uses that image to say, hey, listen, this is what I'm going through in all of these little conflicts that we have you know, all these little differences and, and the changes of attitude and the disagreements. He goes, this is like childbirth. We're supposed to be united. We're supposed to be one. But here's the problem. You're not consistently looking like Jesus yet. You haven't been formed into the image of Jesus yet. And Paul would admit for himself that he hasn't either. And so our expectation of unity in the church, our expectation of the fellowship of brothers and sisters in Christ and the way that we're supposed to love each other, we have to understand that we also need the grace for one another to be birthed, to be formed into the image of Jesus, and to know that that process, it's going to be painful. Relationships in the church, it, it, it might be hard. It might be painful. There may be seasons of just that ugh, tension and clenching and I don't understand why it feels like this. But the point is, is that we're going through the process to get to the desired result, to look like Jesus. And so for ourselves, the relationship may have ended. and Maybe it wasn't even your fault. Maybe it was something that somebody did to you. And the relationship ended. Maybe the friendship fizzled and, and, and you're not really sure why. Maybe the people that you spent time investing into their lives, discipling them, sharing Jesus with them, having fellowship with them, maybe for some reason something changed and, and they just won't call you back. They won't have fellowship with you for some reason. The answer to all of that, if we find ourselves in those positions and and we're confused by it and frustrated by it and even angry and hurt by those things, the answer to all of that is quite simple. It's just that you are experiencing the exact same thing that the Apostle Paul is talking about here in this section of Scripture. And like childbirth, there is pain and struggle within the body of Christ, within our walk with the Lord, until... Jesus is fully birthed in us, and we get to have the experience of looking like Jesus, filled with love and peace and joy. All of the attributes that we're told of that that are from the Holy Spirit, that's who Jesus was at all times. And that's what we're shooting for, is to look like Jesus. Now, rather than leave you hanging with that final thought of, well, life may just stink and and most of your relationships probably won't work out. Uh, But you got heaven to look forward to, right? Isn't that the worst encouragement? I mean, that's just, granted, it's true. Hey, we got heaven to look forward to. The present age, it's going to pass away. Yeah, but this stinks. This is just not fun going through these challenges. What I want to leave you with is perhaps this comfort. Mark down John chapter 8. John chapter 8, verse 31, it says, So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. When you're in the middle of a conflict, oftentimes there can come this moment of disorientation and and confusion to where you might even start questioning, going, was it my fault? I don't think I did anything wrong. I I don't understand necessarily why things broke down the way that they did in relationship. Was it like Paul because I simply chose to speak the truth to someone and they didn't like it? Was that the reason for the disconnect or or the breakup or whatever the case might be? We can all find ourselves in those positions to where there's this confusion and frustration over the end or breakup or or disconnection of a a relationship. But here's what Jesus says. That even in the midst of confusion, even in the midst of hard experiences, even in the midst of childbirth-like pain, here's what Jesus says. If you abide, if you live in, walk with, are fully immersed in my word, then two things. Number one, you're truly my disciple. Someone who doesn't know Jesus' voice, someone who doesn't know his word, can't truly be his disciple because Jesus' voice and his words to us give us instruction about how we're to live. And so the one who knows his voice and abides, lives in his word, is truly my disciple and that person who knows his word, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Free from what? Free from sin. Because if you believe upon Jesus, you confess and repent, you partake of his body and his blood, you die with him in baptism, resurrected to new life as you come out of the water. If you abide in Jesus' words, then you're in the truth, and the truth sets you free free for the purpose of salvation, but also free from the anguish of disunity, of schism of hatred masked as love, free from insincerity. If you remain in Jesus' word, you will know the difference between truth and reality, and you will see that his life as an example bridges the gap between those two things. Pursue Jesus and his word. Live in his word. Walk in his word. Abide in his word and you'll know what is true and that truth will set you free.